putting aside our excuses and sin, and embracing what God wants to do in our lives next on Abounding Grace. You wonder, why shouldn't I go in this direction? Why shouldn't I lie? Why shouldn't I steal? Why shouldn't I cheat on my taxes? Why shouldn't I take advantage of my neighbor? Why? I'll tell you why. Because God, he wants to do great things in your life, and your sin has separated you from God. And it does every single time. You know, there are always excuses in our lives, aren't there? Always excuses. People will come to us and share the truth with us, and if we're not careful, the first thing out of our mouth is an excuse. We've justified our behavior because we've already figured out why it's okay for us and not okay for you. This is amazing grace. Think you're better than the next guy? Think again. Apart from Christ, we're all seen as unrighteous and wicked in the sight of God. And that's important to understand as it emphasizes how greatly we need a Savior. Welcome to Abounding Grace. Pastor Ed Taylor is going through Romans right now and we enter chapter two today. Our attention turns now to those who think they are righteous but in reality are far from it. Let's make sure we don't fall into that camp ourselves. Here's Pastor Ed with his message, Inexcusable. Chapter 1 is heavy. It lays out the need for a Savior to those that are living contrary to the things of God. Really what Paul is doing is he's formulating in chapter 1, chapter 2, up into chapter 3, the need that we all have for a Savior. That the righteousness that's required by God is the very righteousness that is provided by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that righteousness becomes ours by faith. And so chapter 1 deals with some serious sins. I draw your attention to the end of chapter 1. Look at verse 29. It says, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, verse 30, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And it's easy for us at the end of that list just to say, wow. I'm so glad that I'm saved. That's not me anymore. I don't live that kind of life anymore. Those things aren't part of my life. I don't practice those things anymore. But we had to deal with verse 32, didn't we? And we did last week. If you were not here last week, you need to pick up the study. Because Paul says something very powerful to those of us that might pull out a judgmental finger on everyone that's participating in this kind of behavior. And he says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, verse 32, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And last time we were together, we looked at how important it is to be prayerful and careful where you place your stamp of approval. Because that which you approve of is that which you participate in. And so for us as Christians, it's not enough to say, oh, well, I'm glad I'm not involved in that anymore. And you're involved in that. And you need to repent of your sin. But rather being careful not to be judgmental and pointing the finger. We need to remember, right? Every time we point the finger, we've got how many coming back at us? At least three. Depends on how you point. You know, I guess you could point that way. I don't know. But you got three coming back at you. 
Because we as Christians, we, we think, well, you know, I'm, I'm not living that life anymore, so hey, I'm doing just fine. But Paul said there's, a more, there's more to it than just participating actively, outwardly. It's all a matter of the heart. And so many times we could be participating in things in the heart, but really not outwardly and think we're getting away with it. We're not. And for those that think they can relate to God, living in this type of sin, they're wrong. And we come to chapter 2, and, and he opens up to the moral person now. I mean, it's like Paul's setting us up He's to the point where, well, look, 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 you're not living this way. You're a good person. You do good things. So that has to amount for something, right? I mean, in the economy of God, don't good people get into heaven? No, actually, bad people get into heaven that have been changed by the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. You see, if you choose to relate to God by being good, how much good is good enough? It never seemed to really measure up, right? How good do you have to be? Is it just helping someone across the street? Is it just helping someone with their groceries? I mean, is it just giving money to the church? Is it being religious? How good is good enough? Well, good enough is Jesus Christ. And by faith in him, you're good enough. Because you're hidden in him. Your life is hidden in him. And he opens up, therefore, you're inexcusable. Inexcusable, man. Whoever you are. That's pretty broad. Whoever you are who judge... For whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. You can't come to the end of chapter 1 and go, well, I'm I'm a believer. Those are sinners. I'm not a sinner like that anymore. I go to church. I'm good. I give my tithes to God. I give. I'm faithful. Thoughts swirl around like we aren't one of them. But these behaviors can creep up. You know what I found? I found as a Christian myself and being around Christians for many years, I found this to be true about all of us. We're very good at making excuses. We're very good at justifying our behavior. We have a standard for ourselves and the standard is different for someone else. So that when someone comes to us and says, hey, I'm looking at your life and I see this in your life, one of the first things that comes up usually is an excuse. Oh, no, no, you don't. If you just knew what I was going through, if you just knew what I was feeling, if you just know how long I've lived with this person, if you just knew how long I was single, if you just knew where I work, if you just knew how much money I need, then you'd understand why it's okay for me to sin. Yeah, think about it. Because that's exactly what we do. When confronted with sin in our lives, we are very good at making excuses for ourselves while at the same time judging someone someone else for the very same things that are in our lives. That's the essence of this section here in chapter 2. We're inexcusable. It's easy to see bad behavior in others, but really think the best about ourselves. And it's interesting how many people God brings into our lives that we deal with the same thing. It's the same behavior. You might have had two or three or four people and they're really starting to get under your skin and the behavior is really starting to bother you. And you have to ask yourself, is God bringing me all these people so that they might be a mirror for some of the same things that are going on in my life? Because I'm not seeing it, so God sends people into my life to say, well, I can see it now in someone else. And as you're seeing it now in someone else, guess what? God says, that's you. And then we say, no, it's not. And it is. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'll show you what I mean. David. It says that when David was there at the time that the kings went out to war, he decided not to fight. He decided to stay home. 
Everyone else around them wanted to go to battle. It was customary. It was common for the kings to go to battle. And as he stayed home, he catches a glimpse of this woman by the name of Bathsheba. And the rest is history, isn't it? He commits adultery with her. She becomes pregnant. And instead of just confessing his sin, he tries to wipe out her husband. Her husband was one of his mighty men fighting on the battlefield for him. He calls her husband home and says, look, I'm going to give you some time off. Spend some time with your wife. And all the while, he's trying to cover it up, hoping that they will come together. And in the coming together, after it's known that she's pregnant, everyone will think it's her husband and he's off the hook. But that doesn't happen because Uriah was a very, very honorable man. And he said, there's no way I'm going to spend time with my precious wife while my buddies are out there fighting in battle. I'm not going to do it. And so what does he do? David sends Uriah back out with a note with one of his uh, commanders to say, put him on the front lines. I want him out of here. Over and over, he covers up and covers up. And you know what? He got away with it for a couple years. He got away with it until chapter 12, verse 1. God sent Nathan to David. Do you realize that as, and, and I pray that it's not to many of you here, but it could be to some of you here. Do you realize that when you set about to try to cover your sin, God sends people into your life to uncover it? That when you're trying to hide it all together and put it here and hide in a little box, God is sending people with the keys to the hidden things of your heart to reveal, first of all, to you. He just wants you to be right. He just wants you to get things right. He just wants you and I. He, we, we, he wants us to come to him and say, look, God, I realize that I've sinned against you. I'm willing to take the consequence. I'm hidden in Jesus Christ. And when you set out to cover your sin, the longer it goes, God sends people into your life like Nathan, a friend. It says in verse 1, he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his own bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came, verse 4, to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. I can see David red-faced, angry, pointing the finger, show me that man. Because when I meet that man, I'm the king. And as the king, I'll take care of that man. I'll take care of this injustice. I'll make it right. This guy is worthy of death. Verse 6, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David is all ready, isn't he? God has set it all up for him perfectly in that place. And if you have a pen in your hand or you have a pencil or you have a highlighter, please, please, please mark these words in verse 7. Very important. Circle it. Put a star next to it. Memorize it. Listen. Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Changes everything, doesn't it? You are that man, David. It's you. I'm talking about you. God has sent me to you, David, to reveal to you, you are the man. It's about you. And isn't that the case in our Christian lives? We may be carried about with everybody's business and everybody's things, but the reality is, is God wants to reach you. It's all about you. It's about your heart. It's about your walk. It's about your personal relationship with God. 
You wonder why all this stuff's going all over at, at work. Well, it's about you. Why has God allowed all this stuff? In my, because it's about you. Why is God sending these people into my... Well, you know why now? Who is it about? You. And you could say it's about you, Ed, because he does the same thing in my life. That he sets things up and he sends people into my life so that they might tell the truth to us. It says, you are this man, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your keeping, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, listen, I also would have given you much more. David, Christian, unbeliever, I could have given you much more. God, he's for us. He's not against us. He's interested in seeing you grow, become spiritually strong. He wants to see your marriage become stronger. He wants to see your kids grow up godly. He wants you to see, see you become that godly employee that brings glory to God's name in your workplace. He wants to see you become that godly person that stays home with the kids. He wants to see you become that godly boss, that person that might even be looking for work now. And you're wondering, why so many doors? Could it be all the doors are being laid before you so you might reach people you never meet ever again in your life? And God is delaying in your life some things to teach you a lesson about yourself. But David, he comes to this place. You know what? It could have been much more, David. Doesn't sin hold back God's goodness in our lives every single time? You wonder, why shouldn't I go in this direction? Why shouldn't I lie? Why shouldn't I steal? Why shouldn't I cheat on my taxes? Why shouldn't I take advantage of my neighbor? Why? I'll tell you why. Because God, he wants to do great things in your life. And your sin has separated you from God. And it does every single time. You know, there are always excuses in our lives, aren't there? Always excuses. People will come to us and share the truth with us. And if we're not careful, the first thing out of our mouth is an excuse. We've justified our behavior because we've already figured out why it's okay for us and not okay for you. Excuses often are the response to two things, conviction of the Holy Spirit and confrontation by another brother or sister. Don't misunderstand what confrontation is. I don't mean getting in someone's face and yelling and screaming at them. I just simply mean that God, like Nathan, would send you or send someone into your life and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I see some things going on in your life. Let's talk about them. And if your first response is some excuse, it's already a habit in your life that needs to be broken. And I've shared this over and over again. I'll share it again. I teach my kids this. As a flock, I want to learn it myself. Understand this. If you get good at making excuses... I mean, if you're so good at making excuses that you can wrap everything around an excuse and you can justify every bad behavior in your life, listen, if you get good at making excuses, the danger is, is that's all you're going to be good for. God sends people into your life to change you. God sends people into your life to speak to you. God sends people in situations in your life to take you out of the normal thing. He's not looking for an excuse. He's not looking for justification. He just simply wants us to repent and lay our lives down at Jesus all over again. But what if it happens every day, Pastor Ed? Well, then every day, God is wanting to change your life. Every single day. Every moment of the day. But see, if we excuse it, like, no longer, you know, if someone comes and says, I think you're a gossip. Oh, no, I'm not a gossip. I'm just trying to help people. Oh, okay. Or you're a liar. Oh, no, no, I'm not lying. I'm just, I'm just not telling you everything. Or I'm not going to, I'm not even going to admit that I'm a liar. You're a liar. I'm a liar. You're a liar. No, no. You know, if you're lying, just repent and stop lying. Can Christians lie? What did Paul tell Ephesians? He says, stop lying. So I guess we can. How do we lie? We can shade the truth a little. We can tell half-truths. Why don't we ever call them half-lies? 
<laughs> Just thinking about it, you know. It's a half truth. No, it's a half lie. It's really a whole lie. But we change things. You know, I looked up the word excuse. It literally means to grant an exemption. That makes sense, doesn't it? I'm exempt. You're not. <laughs> As a pastor, I could cop that attitude all the time, you know. I'm a pastor. I can do whatever I want. So don't, don't, if I ever say that, just hit me. Go ahead. Because that's not, that's not the truth. I'm a believer. I'm even held to a higher standard as a pastor. There are things in my life that I have to sacrifice that perhaps in your life at this point you don't need to. And so whether it's a leader or, or whether it's a, you're, you're right now you're a new believer or you're progressing on your Christian walk, listen, we don't want to exempt ourselves from the truth. When God brings someone in our life, you're a gossip or you lied or you stole that. No, no, I just borrowed it. For five years you just borrowed it? Give the lawnmower back, okay? <laughs> I, I listen to that a lot when people lose their jobs. And we'll start talking about, how'd you lose your job? You, you know what happened? Well, well, I borrowed a few things from the work and I didn't tell anyone. No, you stole things from work. You know, when you walk out with a computer like this, you know, I don't think you can borrow it. So I take little paper clips and pens or whatever it might be. If it doesn't belong to you and you take it, guess what that is? Stealing. See, we get this attitude, well, well, it's okay for me because I'm such and such. No, it's not okay if you're a Christian. So much of our potential falls by the wayside with excuses. So much of what God wants to do in our life, so much what, how much he wants to use us to the capacity of, of greater and grander things fall to the wayside because we've explained our bad behavior away. Instead of just listening to David when he says to us, you or to Nathan, you are that man. You are that woman. And yet the Lord Jesus wants us to rise above these things. It's too, it's too easy as we come back to Romans now at the end of chapter 1 to become judgmental. It's just too easy. We're surrounded in a world when we read the end of chapter 1. It sounds like the morning newspaper for goodness sake of all these behaviors that are just all over our world. And for us as Christians, because we've been delivered from it, it's so easy to say, look at them. But the Bible says, look at you. Examine your heart. There's no escaping God's judgment for anyone. Verse 2, it says, But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Notice that the judgment of God is according to truth. It's not a democratic process. We don't figure out how God's going to judge. Well, let's take a vote here. Do you think God should judge? It's not according to the democratic process. It's not by popular demand. God doesn't judge by taking a poll. His judgment is according to truth. And truly, only he can judge this way, according to truth. He says in verse 3, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you'll escape the judgment of God? I mean, do you really think that because you're not actively in it or you haven't been caught in it that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Judgment will come to every man, woman, and child. In this room, listening in on the radio, listening in from afar, every one of us will face judgment. Now, of course, those of us that are hidden in Jesus Christ, he's taking that judgment upon himself. So that when the time of judgment comes, as believers, we're judged for the gifts and the talents that God has given us, not in relation to salvation, but in relation to how we've lived our Christian life. But for the unbeliever, the wrath of God, eternal separation. Because that's what it says in verse 6, notice, or really verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitence. Now, it's an old English word. It simply means unrepentant. Your refusal to repent, holding on to it, fighting against it. 
in accordance with your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath. That's the great white throne judgment, you know. And the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Those are all those describing those that have given their life to Jesus Christ. You have a whole new life now. And because you have a whole new life, you're seeking world, not worldly things, but heavenly things. But, verse 8, to those that are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now understand the context here. There are no chapter breaks in the original Greek manuscripts, so these all read straight through. So if we were to read straight through from chapter 1, verse 32, Paul has already laid before us that it's not just the practicing outward of these behaviors and these sins, but rather you can just be approving of them and allow them in your home and in your life. And you're just as guilty. I'm just as guilty if these things are in my life, even if I'm not outwardly practicing them. And the judgment of God is according to truth. The judgment of God is according to truth. So that when these things come in our lives, we have a choice to either acknowledge them and turn from them or we can make excuses. There is a tendency in our lives to deny our own guiltiness. And I want to give you a few things just so you can kind of wrap your mind around it. How do we deny that these are in our lives? Let me give you four things, four ways that I can see that we deny that we're guilty. So when the heaviness of conviction comes upon us and our first reason, our first answer is an excuse, we're actually denying that we're guilty. And I find at least four ways. There's many others, but at least four. Number one, we simply ignore sin in our lives. That's, we just ignore it. I can't be guilty because what I'm doing isn't wrong. I don't think it's wrong. Who are you to tell me it's wrong? And we just deny it. We just ignore it. No, no, no. You, you can't tell me this. You, you can't. Who are you to tell me? And we get that response a lot. We just ignore our own guiltiness. Number two, We've already looked at it. We excuse our own guilty. We make excuses. We justify it. Everyone else, everyone else it applies to, but not to us, because I'm in a unique situation. I've got unique things in my life, and so I just, I'm just making excuses. I, I'm going to rename them. I'm going to ignore them. Number three, one reason, another reason why we're blinded is, or why we deny our guiltiness is because we're blinded. Do you know that we all have blind spots? How many times have you avoided an accident in your car by simply looking over your shoulder before you change lanes? Do you remember? I remember being in high school, and I thought that was the dumbest thing. Look over, I got mirrors, you know? What's up with that? I, what do I need to look over my shoulder for? I got all these mirrors, and we've got all these little tricks with the mirrors, right? We look over here to get over there, and we look around. When they taught us to look over our shoulders, I can't tell you how many accidents just this weekend Looking over my shoulder saved me from pushing a guy off the road. Even if he deserved to go off the road, <laughs> he didn't. I was just wanting to change lanes. I was kind of going fast. A guy in front of me was going slow. I want to get around. You know, I'm not, I'm not breaking any laws, but I make that noise. When you're driving a minivan, you got to make those noises. <laughs> and I looked over my shoulder. Why? Because that car was where? In my blind spot. As Christians, we all have spiritual blind spots, and we need to learn to look over our shoulders. Sometimes the look over our shoulder is actually God sending someone into our lives. So I've seen something in your life that maybe you don't see, and I always know I'm in for a tough time 
When I'm involved in this and I'm sharing, hey, I see this in your life, and the first response from someone is, don't you judge me. Like, oh, this is going to be a big one. This is going to be a heavy one right now. I'm not trying to judge you. I just want what's best for you. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. He's leading a study from Romans. You can find our studies online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. And they're accessible through our app, too. Do a search for Calvary Aurora in the App Store or Google Play. Here in the month of December, we've picked out a timely resource we think you'll enjoy and get a lot out of. It would even make for a great Christmas gift. It's called The Case for Christmas. So who was in the manger that first Christmas morning? Not everyone agrees on the answer to that. If he was the divine son of God, how do you know for sure? Well, Lee Strobel investigates in The Case for Christmas, and we'll send it to you when you support Abounding Grace with a gift of $25 or more today. Please make your request by phone at 877-30-GRACE. Please remember that it's through your support that we're able to bring Abounding Grace to your radio station every day. With your help, countless thousands of people are hearing the truth of God's Word all over the nation and world. We can be reached toll-free at 877-30-GRACE, or you can make a donation online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Set aside another half hour to join us tomorrow when we'll dig deeper into Romans with Pastor Ed Taylor here on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.